So brothers, it's always important to root ourselves in scripture. So just inspired, the Lord just kind of gave it to me. So we're going to use 2 Samuel chapter 11 as our point of departure to introduce us to where we want to wind up ultimately to fatherhood. So you guys know this. We're talking about King David. And so it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So what we want to highlight here, at the time when kings normally go to battle, David doesn't go into battle. He remains at Jerusalem. And I'm sure you know what happens. Because of this idleness, he allows his mind to be overtaken by lust. That lust leads to having to cover up, murder, etc., etc., etc. So what I want to emphasize here is that David's sin is, well, shirking his responsibility. David is a warrior. If you know anything about David, right? He's, that's what he, he's trained. You know, I mean, he's a shepherd, but really the Lord forms him as a warrior. And he's shirked his responsibility as a soldier and a warrior. And so that would be my argument for where he derails. Now, if he is faithful in that commitment to, if I simply do what everyone does, in my position, because kings at this time are supposed to go out, they're supposed to lead their men in battle. You know, you don't send people ahead of you, right? You know, heroic kings of the past, they don't say like, yeah, you go fight my war and uh, I'm just going to be like the armchair general. No. This is why Jesus is epic. Because he doesn't say, hey, you, take up your cross and I'll watch. He says, take up your cross and follow me. I'm the king. I'm going to lead the charge. I'm asking you to follow me. So David is a warrior, but he momentarily, he does not receive that mission. I want to make the argument that as men, we are at our best when we embrace this call to be warriors. Now, I don't know about you, but it People who know me, they wouldn't necessarily think that I'm like an aggressive type. Uh, you know, with children and fam families, infants, I'm very, very, uh, yeah, I love, love being with them. Very, very gentle. But also, a word about that. Gentle has this connotation for being weak and effeminate. But actually, we had our uh, philosophy professor at Kenrick Lennon when I was on faculty there, uh, Dr. Randy Colton. And he spent, he gave a 20-minute presentation on the virtue of gentleness. Now, if you were to ask me, hey, Father, exhaust all of your knowledge about what you could say about gentleness, I would be struggling to do, say more than like two or three sentences, right? But one of the big points that he made was that gentleness, it implies power. You need to harness that power. It has a connotation for being weak, but it's anything but. You know, you don't have to tell a weak person, hey, be gentle. 
No, you need to tell a stallion, hey, be gentle, harness that power, or a bull in a china shop, hey, you gotta be gentle, right? Someone who's overpowering and has more power than the situation calls for, and you entrust a, an infant to that person, you'd be like, you have gotta be really gentle, right? So what it does, it, gentleness, it implies power. So we, we are at our best. Men, we are at our best when we're at war, when we embrace this call to be a soldier, to be a warrior. Think of the contrapositive. See what we see in our culture. We see like first world problems. When we get spiritually fat and lazy as men, what happens? Well, we forget. We forget, well, I guess we start thinking about our first world problems. C.S. Lewis makes this point, right, in Mere Christianity. He says, when you're at war, you don't have time to think about pillows and fluffy pancakes. You are at war, man. Man up, right? Ain't nobody got time to think about first world problems, right? You just wake up. You know, you think about when we were at our best as a nation. You know, think about like the First World War, Second World War, and what that summons within us as a people, as Americans. You know, what's best about being Americans? It's like that solidarity of, hey, we're at war. And so that totally frames and gives us context for what our expectations should be. You know, when you're at war, you don't start, again, you, you can't be complaining that you don't have like sugar or butter. It's like, do you realize that we're fighting for our lives? And you're talking about complaining about like not having butter? It's like, what's wrong with you? But they're like, oh, right, right, yeah, we're at war. So that's what we need to be reminded of. So the segue into culture war. So this is what Peter Craig refers to. Just a beautiful synthesis of the situation. So he says, here's our problem. As a culture, so you think about this. You need to know, if you're a soldier, you need to know just really intuitive things. That a war is going on, you need to know who your enemy is, and you need to know what your weapons are. Like, can you imagine like an elite athlete, like, uh, I don't know, Mike Trout, I really like Mike Trout. If Mike Trout is just, has like some amnesia on the field, and he like doesn't even realize he's on a baseball field. And not only that, not only does he not realize he's on a baseball, he doesn't even realize like a game is happening. This isn't even like practice. We'd be like, Mike, wh what's the deal here? Like, this is like what you're trained for. You need to know some basic things. Like you are playing baseball, like this is game time situation. It would be ludicrous for a soldier to not even know that he's at war, to not know who the enemy is, and to not know what his weapons are, and yet, Spiritually, as Christians, this is kind of the basic state for so many of us. We've been just lulled to sleep because we don't realize, we don't see the threats. We don't realize we're at war. When we do realize we're at war, we have different expectations. I heard a priest give a very poignant introduction. He said, what is 
one virtue that Satan possesses that all Christians ought to categorically imitate. It's really intriguing. You're like, what virtue can, would we possibly want to imitate in Satan? And the response was his persistence. Never give up. It's actually really stupid, but in some strange way, this type of persistence is truly extraordinary. Consider this. We know how things are going to end. We know who's going to win in the end, right? We know God's going to win. And so if you have that type of certainty, wouldn't that allow you to be totally persistent in knowing that I am on the winning side. We are not going down. You think about, just think about the, again, the sporting analogy. I don't know, like, let's say it's like game two of the playoffs in basketball, and you're just like down 50 points. And you're like, okay, way too much damage. Let's just call it in. We're not going to expend more energy. We're going to devote and dedicate and regroup for the next games, because this is just a, a lost cause, this game, but we're gonna regroup for the next effort, right? So if you know that you are so far down, wouldn't it be such a strong temptation to be like, forget it, it's just not worthwhile, like we're just gonna pack it in, we're gonna throw the white towel in. So isn't, that's basically Satan's situation. Like Satan, he actually knows that he's gonna lose, right? He's different than us, you know, he's, uh, he's a pure spirit, so he's got intuitive knowledge. He actually knows. He actually knows he's going to lose. He's made this definitive decision. That's why there's no mercy for Satan, right? Mercy is only for the ignorant and for the repentance. Well, he's not ignorant, and he can't repent because his volition is set. You know, once he decides, it's the same thing with angels and demons. That's what pure spirits do, right? So it's. It's like kamikaze mission. It, it, it just doesn't, it's so nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. Like he knows, he's actually chosen the losing side and he knows it and yet he's still persistent. In fact, heard from an exorcist once who was talking, he was engaging the, uh, the demons. He's like, so you guys, you already know you're gonna lose. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we do. And yet you're still trying to, you're still attacking. They're like, yeah. It's like, how does that make sense? It's like, yeah, it kind of doesn't make any sense. And yet they are so persistent. If Satan and his demons can be so persistent knowing that they've chosen the losing side, how much more should we be able to match that and go above and beyond? And instead, so often we're, we're discouraged, right? We act as if we're the ones on the losing side, but it's the flip. And so this is why we should see Satan's relentlessness and we should match that. You know, I get amped up about Satan in this regard. You know, when, uh, when I hear uh, people who are intentionally just kind of being mediocre, I say like, do you know that Satan doesn't take an off day? You know, Satan doesn't take an off moment. You know, like if I'm having a, a rough moment or I'm feeling particularly discouraged, he's not like, oh, poor Edward, I'm going to take it a little bit easier on him. You know what he's thinking? He's gonna, I'm going to beat the crap out of Edward. This is my, my moment 
to beat the living daylights out of him. I'm going to pummel him. I'm going to I'm going to throw everything at him. I want him to die. I hate his guts. I hate God, and I hate him because he hates everyone who's made in God's image and likeness. And I know that, and that fires me up because that is such cowardice, right? Way to go, right? Take on a man while he's down. That's really manly. That that just angers me. Not just not just towards me, but when I see he's attacking all of my loved ones, the entire people of God, I mean, I probably never get as angry as I ever do, except in the confessional. I get so angry. Not towards penitence. I get so angry at Satan. And I would make the argument that I experience Jesus' own anger towards Satan. I want Jesus to obliterate, pulverize, annihilate Satan. I just want what he deserves, right? I want to experience Jesus' anger towards Satan. It's really important to pray with Jesus' anger towards Satan. It can be a real beautiful prayer exercise of really feeling and experiencing God's protection for us because Jesus isn't angry at us. Jesus is angry at Satan because he's attacking his loved ones. And wouldn't you be pretty angry? Think about your loved ones. If someone was threatening your loved ones, wouldn't that just summon like your epic papa bear, mama bear, synergy all at once? Like nothing would summon anger within me than someone who dares, even thinks about threatening my loved ones. My loved ones are the people of God. That's why I get so angry in the confessional. We want to pray with that. So let's uh, go back to fatherhood. So this is what we're leading up to, right? So as men, we're all called sons, brothers, husbands, fathers. Fatherhood, as we mentioned before, is the pinnacle expression of masculinity. So I'm taking this from uh, Dr. Bob Shooks. Dr. Bob Shooks, he articulates four responsibilities of fatherhood. And so he says it is to provide, to protect, to direct, and to bless. He doesn't go into detail in elaborating on that, but, you know, kind of my sense of what he's talking about is always need to make distinctions, right? You know, always need to explain your terms. Providing, so providing for those entrusted to our care. Providing the good. Directing them towards the good, right? So first, providing all of their needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, doing what we can, right? I mean, ultimately, the Lord does that, right? But we're conduits, and we're entrusted with that mission of providing. Second, protecting. We talked a lot about that, a little, a little bit about that, alluded to that, that Papa Bear instinct to protect. If someone is threatening our family, there's a reason why the Lord has put that passion of aggression and violence within us. 
because it's, it's meant to protect our loved ones. And in fact, there would be something disordered within us if someone were attempting to threaten and hurt my loved ones, and if I was just merely passive. We'd be like, hey, um, it's kind of a, you're kind of messed up because the healthy, ordered response is you're supposed to get really livid and there should be this vehement pushback and that should elicit within you an immediate aggression and violence in order to protect your loved ones. That would be the ordered response. Third, to direct or guide. So to direct towards the good, right? One thing to think about, you know, think about one of those axioms of um, morality or ethics, do good, avoid evil. So directing them towards the good and steering them clear also from evil. And a big one that isn't talked about as much, but it's um, blessing or affirming, that fourth responsibility, which is so important. And we see, we recognize just how important blessing and affirming our children is because the, of the devastating effects when we don't properly bless or affirm our children or when we speak badly about them, right? To our sons to let them know, son, the Lord loves you and I love you and you have what it takes. Or daughter, the Lord loves you, I love you, and you are beautiful, and you are cherished. And it's important for you to receive that. And dad's telling you that. So blessing and affirming the identity of our children. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.